Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is February the 26th, the last Friday in February uh, 2021. It hasn't been a great month, but things seem to be improving, at least in some ways, uh, on the COVID front. Um, Rather than the disease itself now, we are focusing on the vaccine and some of the moral and sociological questions associated with that vaccine. Apparently, according to Politico, only 5% of vaccinations have gone to black Americans, uh, even though uh, they'd be much more affected in terms of death uh, by, by the disease. Um, there is what the FT calls vaccine hesitancy amongst African-Americans. Um, and according to the Washington Post, which is again a, a fairly left liberal newspaper, uh, they're calling it now Biden's vaccine. I'm not sure whether it's really Biden's vaccine is, is running into quote unquote distrust in the black community. Um, so, uh, uh, some people suggest that it may be something to do with what's called the Tuskegee study in terms of the ambivalence of African-Americans towards the vaccine. One person who's been doing a huge amount of thinking about this is my guest today. Uh, she's the author of the award-winning book, the National Book Critics Award, uh, A Medical Apartheid. Uh, her name is Harriet Washington. Uh, Harriet... Um, explain the ambivalence of African-Americans towards the vaccine, or indeed even before that, is there ambivalence? Is the media representing what's happening correctly in terms of African-American uh, response to the vaccine? Andrew, thank you very much for asking that question. It's key, but it's so rarely asked. I submit that African-Americans are not exhibiting an undue reticence toward accepting the vaccine. We can't know for sure because we haven't done uh, collected the data. But what we do know is that when the clinical trials are being conducted, we heard the same narrative. African-Americans are not participating in clinical trials. But when the data from the trials were published by BioNTech, Pfizer, and the Moderna vaccine, researcher at Johns Hopkins shared with me that African-Americans were in the studies at 10% of the subject pool. African-Americans are only 12.3% of the American population, so they were showing up um, in a very respectable rate, commensurate with their um, percentage of the population. There was no widespread hesitancy. And I submit that there may not be any here. The fact that there are fewer African-Americans who've gotten the vaccine can also reflect barriers to vaccine access, of which there are quite a few, including healthcare policies. It's a narrative that's often trotted out, but it's trotted out by people who do not know the his history. They invoke Tuskegee because it's the only study they know of. They don't know of other studies, and so they make that assumption. However, we already know that that narrative is flawed and untrue. 
Uh, Thomas LaVista Jones Hopkins did several studies asking whether or not the Tuskegee study was actually the impetus for African-American fears and reluctance and found no, it was not. What was the impetus is four centuries of abuse in the medical arena. And in fact, one study indicated that African-Americans who had never heard of Tuskegee were more likely to fear vaccine administration and medication design. So it's a very flawed narrative based on an, um, frankly, ignorance of history. And it serves to veil the fact that African-Americans are being separated from vaccine access by policies that we can change. Uh, I know you were also very concerned with a report. This is from the BBC, a report about French racism, row, this is quoting the, the BBC headline over the, the doctor's Africa testing comments in which it seemed as if some French doctors were suggesting that we could test or we, we in the West could test on, on, on Africans because uh, in order to test the vaccine. Is there still in your mind a, a deeply rooted Western racism when it comes to finding this vaccine and testing it? Not in my mind. Um, history shows us clearly that um, these practices actually do operate against the health and uh, ethics of people of color. And it wasn't only the BBC. There was widespread um, outrage in Europe when French doctors um, definitely proposed that Africa is the appropriate site for ethically troubled um, vaccine research. In fact, I wrote a piece from Monde Freak in which I examined the long history of, the site of uh, selecting African sites and Global South sites for research that would not be countenanced in this country. So that's a definite, well-documented problem. Harriet, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, the writer Heather McGee. She has a, a wonderful new book out, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. It's not, uh, she was on the show uh, last week. It's not really a book about the health system, but she does suggest that the quite literally the looting of the healthcare system, its privatization has been caused by white Americans or many white Americans hostility and fear and insecurity when it comes to black Americans. Um, to, to what extent has the, in your mind, the privatization of the American health system and its intimately bound up racism contributed to our current crisis of the coronavirus, both in terms of the disease and its vaccine? I can't comment on books I haven't had the chance to read yet. You need to I... read it, though. I think you'll, uh, I, I can't speak again on, on in terms of what you like and don't like in, in books, but I think you'll find it a very interesting book. But anyway, sorry, go on. Oh, it's okay. Not a matter of liking or not liking. It's just a matter of not having read it and can't comment on it. But I did write my own book on the subject in 2011 entitled Deadly Monopolies, in which I trace, looking at healthcare specifically, I trace the commodification of medicine um, emanating from 1980 when we had several laws passed in the U.S. that made it easier to transfer um, intellectual property patents from universities to um commercial entities, corporations. And what happened was that the universities were like a public good centered um, site of medical research. They were motivated by what people needed. When we badly needed a polio vaccine, they focused energies on that, for example. But now we have commercial um, commodified approach to healthcare where the needs of the industry to make money and to earn profits is trumping the medical needs of our, our, our population. 
it's the reason why in my um, analysis that we have 20 medications for erectile dysfunction and nothing novel for malaria. It's no longer being driven by people's needs. It's being driven by the profit measure. Now, of course, they can sometimes intersect, and that's a good thing. But what happens to medications after they intersect is not a good thing. Medications in this country are wildly overpriced because, again, we have the corporate profit mentality, um, which has displaced a lot of medical altruism that we used to see in healthcare. Harriet, uh, as you know all too well, um, Dr. Fauci, uh, the, the sort of the czar, if that's the right word, of our coronavirus fight, both under Trump and Biden, uh, I think it was late last year, he praised a doctor, a certain doctor, Dr. Kizmikia Corbett, as one of the two leaders of the team who created the vaccine. She is uh, an African-American woman. Um, do you think that one way of perhaps giving more trust to the vaccine is for the public authorities to underline the role of African-American, prominent African-American doctors in the fight against the coronavirus? That is indeed one step. That's one step that has been taken. That's a good thing. However, it's got limited utility. The, you know, it's theater, it's appropriate, and um, that kind of social marketing has a place, but it cannot hope to solve the problem. The problem is we focus on African-American behavior as if that were the problem pathologizing African-American supposed reluctance. Um, but in reality, it's our untrustworthy healthcare system, which unfortunately has a long past and present of perpetuating um, racist dichotomies in treatment and access. That has to be fixed. So of course, we should highlight the role of African-American Doctors, and I've, I've actually advocated that for a very long time. In fact, a lot of people don't know that it was an African-American in this country who introduced the whole concept of variolation. And he, uh, he taught the doctors of Boston how to protect people against smallpox and save the lives of uh, people in Boston in the next epidemic. So we've always was had- Was that uh, one simus, uh, the- oh, Onesimus, yes. And and smallpox treatment was actually modernized by Dr. Lewis T. Wright, also African-American during right, World a very War distinguished, II. Uh, yeah. uh, early 20th century doctor who worked at the Harlem Hospital. Exactly. Um, the issue of trust and mistrust is the core, Harriet, of your new book. Uh, you've made a career out of, of, of writing about the erosion of trust in, in the American me medical system. And your new book, which is just out, I think, today, Carte Blanche, The Erosion of Medical Consent. What's the, the narrative of this new book about uh, the erosion of consent, of medical consent in the American system, Harriet? Uh, it is focused on the fact that we have seen a um, gradual and now not so gradual uh, diminution in consent in medical research. We assume that we have the right to um, be able to say yes or no to medical research. And hopefully we're offered informed consent, which is more sophisticated, where you're given all the information about risk and benefit, et cetera, that you need to make a good decision. But that has not been true since 1996. Two laws were passed very quietly to the Code of Federal Regulations that stipulated exceptions. Research studies where um, 
scientists do not have to offer you consent. Scientists don't have to tell you you're, you're in a research study. And these have been used for tens of thousands of subjects um, since 1996. So with no transparency, the American people have no idea for the most part that there are now research studies that they can be inveigled into without anyone asking them permission. And I find that outrageous. Is that a reflection of this privatization of the, of the medical system? Is it because the public sphere is corrupt? Is it because some of these officials perhaps are even racist? What is the core reason for this crisis of medical consent in the public sphere? Um, there are several reasons. There's no one reason, but um, commodification is indeed part of it. Part of it is that conducting research is largely now um, funded by corporations. And getting informed consent is expensive. It, you can save money by conducting research in foreign venues like the Global South. You can save money by not going through the long, laborious, costly process of obtaining and documenting the consent of your subjects. If you can just scoop them up by ambulance from the city street and do your research, that, that saves you time and money. And so, Financial incentives are really part of it, but there are other parts of, of it too, of course. I mean, researchers, for the most part, are very ethical people who try to alleviate suffering, but they're still human beings. And the temptation to cut corners is there. Also, some researchers, as I have documented in the book, are conducting studies without getting consent in which, from which they're gonna profit financially. Even when they don't profit financially, they profit in other ways, you know, like um, gaining advancement, being, um, you know, getting promotions, fame, that sort of thing. So there are conflicts of interest as well. These all combine to make uh, dispensing with informed consent very seductive to American medical research, but it's not right. It violates ethics and um, it's bad for subjects. It's bad for your average American. <laughs> Harriet, you, 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 I'm quoting you here. You talk about scooping these, mm -hmm. these patients or, 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 or um, examples of the uh, sort of a victims almost of the, these studies up from the streets. Um, you have one case. You actually opened the book with a case where somebody uh, in, I think it was in Chicago, was shot at home, a, a woman called Martha Millet. She was picked up by the hospital and she was... Uh, subjected without her knowledge to um, a, a medical experiment. Tell me about this fake blood study and why it epitomizes the crisis of medical consent in this country. Oh, gladly. Um, her name was Martha Millette and she lives in Detroit, actually. Oh, and, apologies. Oh, it's okay. And, you know, there were lots of these fake blood products, none of which were successfully tested, all of which turned out to be harmed. Only one has ever been approved anywhere, and that was in South Africa. So this one was being tested, it's artificial blood. It's made from old expired blood that would normally be thrown away. It's too old to be actually transfused to anyone. But a company named Northfield Laboratories took this old expired blood and made what it said would be a product safe enough to keep people alive and healthy until they can get to the hospital. Now, um, actually, it's more complicated than that, but there's no, no time to go into the details, but Martha Millette was shot in the chest by a home invader. And as she lay on her floor dying, she was able to call her son, had the ambulance come to her house. But when they got to the house, instead of immediately picking her up and being the treater, 
They took a moment to open a manila envelope that had a computer print out that told them what to give her, the standard of care, which is proven and safe, or this experimental product. They gave her the experimental product. Interestingly, she woke up in the ambulance and saw that it was being infused into her. So um, later, after this has been done to hundreds of people, uh, the study data were collected and analyzed, and they found that people who got the experimental product were more likely to have a heart attack and die than people who got the standard of care. That meant that people died in this research study uh, without ever knowing they were in a research study. People who would have lived had they only been given the standard of care. People who expected the ambulance to pick them up to give them the best known care, not an experimental product. And this is happening more and more frequently with more and more studies across the country. And not only uh, when it comes to fake blood, we had the, the, the cases of people being used um, in, in, in the COVID crisis and actually dying of it. Very briefly, um, Harriet, um, this, uh, th this case um, in, in Texas with a, the anti-malarial drug, I'm not going to even try and pronounce it. I'm sure you can pronounce it by Dr. Robin Armstrong. What happened here and why is this again proof of your argument? Well, this drug is a drug that um, President Trump had championed, um, and frankly, it was being tested, even though um, there were people who, experts early on, who thought it should not be tested. You know, you might, uh, can you tell us what it is? You can probably pronounce it better than I can. <laughs> uh, hydroxychloroquine. Thank and you. And so this was, of course, uh, Trump's, uh, one, of, one of Trump's idiotic one of his more idiotic statements during his presidency. And um, so the person, the doctor who gave it to nursing home patients also happened to be very highly placed in the Republican Party. In fact, he was the person who had nominated Trump initially for the presidency. So anyway, this doctor was giving the patients in, the, in his nursing home and some of the staff this drug um, and claiming that it was curing them. However, the Board of Health in his area looked at the data and decided, no, not only were they not recovering, as he claimed, but there were more people being infected and sickened. And so um, basically, when you have patients in a nursing home, frequently they're not able to get, give legal, legal informed consent. They may not have dementia, they may not have cognitive skills, and so people rely upon um, their family members. It's typically someone in the family or several people in the family who have the legal right to give consent for them. And doctors will call that family member and say, you know, and basically get consent from them. But this doctor didn't do that. And he said, well, if I did that, I'd spend all my time on the phone talking to family members and non-treating patients. Okay, so he decided not to do that, um, which violates ethical strictures. And, but the point is that in the end, this drug found, was found not to have efficacy and its approval was um, terminated. And yet a lot of people had gotten it, not only in that nursing home, of course, but in many places. And it's an example of how emergencies, whether it's a pandemic or wartime, tend to exacerbate this lessening of informed consent. It's easier and more tempting to dispense with informed consent when you're in an urgent situation, you know, and it's true. During the pandemic, we had um, reduced manpower and woman powder. We had resources and the pressure was on to do things quickly 
and it was easy um, easier to dispense with consent. So it's natural for things to escalate during this period, and we've seen it escalate um, this um, withdrawal of consent during the pandemic. Yeah, um, it, uh, it's very troubling. There are lots of other cases in the book. Yeah. I, I know you've got stuff on uh, on anthrax vaccines. I know you have some strong feelings on hypothermia studies in, in Baltimore. We don't have time for that because I know you, are, you, you need to go. But very briefly, in the last five minutes, um, uh, 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 Harriet, what's the fix for this? I know you have your, your, your final chapter is on something called the Nuremberg Code. Um, do we need to tighten the code? Is there a simple fix for this? Or is it a, a broad series of reforms to make sure that uh, we no longer erode medical consent and do away with this awful carte blanche system, which seems to be emerging in the medical system? The simple fix is to revoke the amendments that were passed in 1996. We should not have any legal um, dispensation of informed consent. We frankly have enough ethical challenges to a, a um, fair and equitable research without invoking um, non-consensual research. We're, we're not ready for that society. So we can't do that. Um, we just need to simply observe Tuskegee as we had been trying to do, however, you know, fitfully beforehand, it was a huge mistake to allow these exceptions. And I'd like to see us revoke this. You know, we have this um, idea in this country, I, I think that progress always means going forward. But sometimes, you know, you make a change and you end up not going forward. You can also go backward, either backward ethically or backward medically. In this case, I think we've done both. And it's really time to revisit it and decide that we need to go back, take a step back, and then think better about better ways of doing research more quickly, but also ethically. Well, if we want to go forward, if we mean have to step backwards, you need to read uh, Harriet A. Washington's new book, Carte Blanche, the, Eros the Erosion of Medical Consent. She has one of the most important voices in this sphere. It's a central reading. Harriet, didn't think we could squeeze all this into 25 minutes, did you? I'm so glad we did, though. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Keep well. And uh, perhaps when you have a little bit more time, we, we can have you back on the show to talk more broadly about this subject. Thank you so much. I would much. love that, Andrew. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.